Hello and welcome to this Sunday's episode, episode number two of what we're still calling the Figuring It Out As We Go Along show. Today, I am here as usual with, uh, by the way, I'm Dan, Dan Sapin. Here in Long Island, New York, Huntington, I am with my associates. Martin Hallberg, calling in from Stockholm, Sweden. And Gil Messina here in Boston. Nicely done. Today we are going to talk about boxing. Why? Well, not just as some bloodlust, macho, domination, bloodlust thing, although those things are kind of cool in their own their own special way um, but because at least two of us are kind of into it and since we're in the business of playing with metaphors um, boxing's full of them full of, of useful analogies to different things we do in life um, in particular uh, we're going to look at the story of uh, one of our last great heavyweight champions, Vladimir Klitschko, um, we tried to get on this show unsuccessfully because he's a big star now, but I'm not giving up. Uh, and what it meant that he had to kind of transform himself after going from the next great thing, the, the guy who was touted as the next unbelievable, unbeatable heavyweight champion, um, to the guy who couldn't take a punch and panicked when the other guy fought back, who was told by his own brother, the slightly greater heavyweight champion, Vitaly Klitschko, to quit because he couldn't handle it. And instead, he let himself be rebuilt at the age of 26 or so into a completely different fighter with a different attitude, a different strategy towards using his aggression, towards handling the aggression of his opponents, Basically, after winning the Olympic super heavyweight gold medal and then falling from a very high place, um, humiliated on international television, the guy came back as a totally different athlete and dominated the heavyweight division for more than a dozen years in which nobody could touch him. And there's something in Klitschko's story about how facing adversity and being forced into a reckoning with certain uncomfortable truths about yourself um, and needing to transform makes us evolve or at least gives us the opportunity to. So why boxing to begin with? Well, I loved boxing from the time I was a little kid. Uh, you know, my father, who was a boxing fanatic, a uh, little guy from the Bronx, street fighter who fought a little bit in the army and had to be a tough guy growing up in the Depression. And, uh, well, I was tormented by a, a mean older sibling and had to learn to fight for myself and came through a period of being kind of terrified that the other person could be so angry and violent towards me that once I got the chance to do some martial arts and put on the boxing gloves, it became combination disciplining that part of myself, overcoming fear. Um, but it also became a test. Could I handle it? Could I take that fear and turn it into some kind of skill and discipline? And getting into college sometime in my first day, the little 
Ivy League-ish New England school, one of my first questions for the uh, the the dorm big brother or whatever we called him, uh, the the sophomore guy who knew all the cool stuff on campus was, is there a boxing program here? And he thought there might have been, directed me to a spot, a person I could ask, and it turned out, yeah, we had uh, Hudson Valley, upstate New York, Poughkeepsie, a um, lot of great boxing up there. Floyd Patterson, heavyweight champion, was across the river with his important gym. A lot of great fighters came out of there. Uh, Floyd's son, Tracy Harris Patterson, who was a world champion, um, and turned out that just the year before me, there this had been a, a, a girls' school, and there were uh, far more girls than guys at that point. Uh, the boxing club had been formed by my friend Lisa, uh, who had been a taekwondo, uh, competitive taekwondo uh, practitioner, maybe even a champion, uh, who really wanted to learn to box. And Floyd Patterson had directed her to a guy named Tony Marchese, who became kind of a second father to me. Um, Tony uh, was a hockey player, a speed skater, a professional fighter, a sparring partner for some of the greats, and Tony was a great, great guy for teaching me certain lessons like how to handle fear, like how to stay focused when things are not all that pleasant. And uh, just a shout out, Tony has trained many of our Olympic speed skaters, one of the real Iron Men in his 80s with Parkinson's, still skating, still tearing it up. Um, I managed to get in a few fights in college, got a chance to spar with a lot of really good fighters. And one of the hardest things for me always was that I felt it was this, this imperative thing that the other guy not get to hit me. I was going to make him miss and I was going to make him pay. And that remained a problem. Even today at 57, I'm still fighting a few days a week, training, sparring, got a charity event coming up. I'm trying to get just enough ability back in order to do. But not being humiliated, not being touched, dominated, remained too big a deal for me to get any further in boxing. Because if the other guy managed to lay a glove on me, it felt like failure. I never got hurt in all these years boxing. But the part that hurt wasn't visible. If I walked away from there knowing the other guy just hit me more than I hit him, which tends to happen in this sport, couldn't get it out of my mind for weeks, months, years even. And years go by. Sometime in the late 90s, I start hearing about this guy, Vladimir Klitschko, and his brother, the Klitschko brothers, were, were like the real-world versions of uh, Ivan Drago from the Rocky movies these ridiculously chiseled, steely-eyed, um, deadly boxer punchers from Russia, uh, Ukraine actually, um, who our guys didn't even want to face and managed to watch them. Boy, were they good. Um, against not the best competition at first, but... And then came 2002 after Vladimir, the younger brother, um, and yeah, I related to these guys also because they were Ukrainian and they had a lot of education and they fought, which made it okay for me because that's my background too. Um, and Vladimir ends up uh, in one of his biggest fights against one of his most dangerous opponents, Corey Sanders, who was a part-time fighter from South Africa, a left-hander who was really fast and really strong, hit very hard. 
ruined things for a few fighters before Vladimir. But he was a golfer. He didn't always even train to box. And he comes out with a great strategy. He just runs right at Klitschko and just bombards him. And Vladimir falls down and doesn't get back up. Two rounds. Basically, everybody said Vladimir had no chin, no punch resistance. What I saw was a guy who panicked and hyperventilated. And then, it's not looking so good. His trainer, his brother, half the public are telling him, uh-oh, you can't cut this sport. If you can't stand up to that, the first time you face a guy who fights back. Actually, it's the second time he had faced a club fighter before that who managed not to fall down in 12 rounds and kept fighting back so much that Klitschko basically quit on his stool, got too tired, got knocked down, really looked like he didn't even want to be there anymore. Like The guy had the nerve not to be destroyed by him. Uh, so after this, Klitschko, it is told, took a whole lot of long walks with his new trainer, Manny Stewart, out of the Kronk Gym in Detroit, where so many champions came from. And they had these talks about what it would take if they wanted to go on with a career and become champion of the world again. And what they decided was, you're going to have to become a totally different guy, not just a different fighter. You're going to have to, after winning a super heavyweight gold medal and then tearing up the division, getting the whole world talking about you, being humiliated and showing every fighter in the world how you beat Vladimir Klitschko. If you want to survive here, you've got to become totally different in your style, your approach. You've got to overcome the demons of knowing that when you get hit hard, things might not go well for you anymore. And they start working on a new style, which didn't involve much aggression. It involved waiting. It involved long jabs and subtle movements, controlling the pace of what went on in the, in the ring, how to react if he did get hit so there was no more panic. Comes back, fights in his comeback fight. He fights one guy who was, eh, not bad. Gets knocked down a couple of times, and you could see he was panicking. It wasn't even his chin. It was like on national television. The anxiety took him over. Comes back and fights another guy, Sam Peter, who was supposed to be the next Mike Tyson. Brute of a guy with tremendous punching power and aggression. Peter knocks Klitschko down three times. Only this time, Klitschko gets back up each time and puts a whooping on Peter. No matter what Peter did, Klitschko kept getting back up. And really bounced him around the ring a number of times. And people were starting to say, all right, this guy is developing some heart, some willingness to fight through adversity. And after the Peter fight, nobody laid a glove on him meaningfully for the next 12 years. Finally lost his last two fights, and the last of them, at age 40-something, he got knocked down, ended up getting stopped. The referee stopped the fight, but he fought back. He didn't look scared. His chin was fine. He just got beat by a young, powerful guy. And the story here is that Vladimir Klitschko, as a full-grown man and full-grown world-class athlete, allowed himself to be rebuilt. Not just his boxing, but his psyche, his spirit, his attitude toward life. And now... This, heavy, this retired heavyweight champion of the world who's talking about a comeback at age 44 
is a lecturer at Harvard, is a franchise unto himself, uh, having a couple of PhDs and speaking a lot of languages, dealing with, well, teaching something he calls challenge management, taking challenge and adversity and turning it to your advantage. And so the redemption and transformation of a Ukrainian boxer who refuses to get, or whose publicist refuses to let him get on camera with us uh, so far, ends up being a topic for what we hope will be an interesting dialogue or trialogue. Is that such a word? I think it's a great story. And I mean, there's, there's a lot to dig into here. Um, like you said in the beginning, Dan, like boxing is a great analogy to, to try to talk about and address a number of different things that relates to life, living in this world, being a human, trying to figure things out, you know? But what, what grabs my attention with, with this story, uh, above all, I think, is that moment. Um, I mean, it's probably not just one moment. It's a series of moments. But, you know, I can almost visualize this. I call it the pivot, right? Like something happens. He breaks. Whatever configuration he was in, it breaks. He gets stunned by this dude who just rashes him. And, I mean, everything just came cracking down. Uh, and then through a variety of moves, one could say, or sequence of, of repositioning, he refines himself um, strong enough to continue on few first hard fights, but then he's on the roll again. So that, that moment from like when it cracks down to having found the new path, whatever, you know, the new kind of more technical, slower waiting boxing style that he adopted, I think that metaphor uh, or that kind of sequence is very interesting. Like there is something about that, um, how defeat and humility that comes with defeat kind of reframes things. The, 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 for some reason, the image that comes up is that classical one of a river, right? You know, the river bends, like it just flows, right? So I had this discussion with a good buddy of mine this weekend, actually, in, in a different part of life. You know, we're talking about something completely different. It's like, um, is it good or bad to do this and that? And then, you know, sometimes one doesn't have the right to ask that question. Sometimes the river goes a certain way. And the only thing you can do is to try to make meaning out of that path you're on, right? Like you have to grab something to survive or you have to learn how to swim or you have to figure out the new ecosystem of that bended river. Um, and there's something of the humility involved, I think, in accepting that. Like you can't swim backwards up to the creek anymore. The river has made its decision. You're in this path now, buddy. And then to kind of be wise enough or perceptive enough to figure out that new river, what fish lives there, what algaes are there, um, how does it smell, how does it touch, uh, how does it taste, and to be able to come back up as a great champion in the same sport. I'm really intrigued by that kind of, how could we unpack that? What is, I call it the pivot. Maybe it's not the best word, but... How does that happen? Because so many people in life, I think, are not able to do that. You know, something comes crashing down. Somebody dies, a marriage breaks, a sibling passes, you know, whatever it could be, like a child, something happens. And then you get stuck in that fucking terrified position for years on end. And you try every kind of therapy or every kind of primal scream exposure. But for some reason, the river is still the same it never bends and you're not able to figure out the new surroundings. So what's the difference, Martin, between those people who think they're trying 
to master it and make something of it, but don't. And maybe go to a lot of therapists and analysts and trying this self-help and that self-help. And those who do manage to, I don't know, transform after the pivot. Well, here's a hype. Yeah, here's a hypothesis for you guys. I don't know what do you think. I'm not sure about this one, but I I intuit that it has something to do with letting go and like the unknown. That's my five cents. Like stepping out to something completely unknown. Like the first time you set foot in that river, you have no idea what that is. Um, and to be able to go with that, I guess, is it courage? There is some kind of primal courage in that. Of like, I have no fucking clue where I am. Let's keep doing it, you know? So I would I would put, put my, my pennies on that, I think. Like the unknown, uh, the what Beyond talks about not knowing, you know? Yes. The, what we call negative capability in psychoanalysis. Like the, the capacity to sustain not knowing, of being in an emotional Very turmoil nice. without grappling for facts to build a narrative. That's what I think would be... Uh, and I don't know if it's courage or, or a little bit of um, hardwire that some people are just more psychopathic in their tendencies to fuck it, let's swim. Uh, I don't know. Well, but, but, and I think that's what I've been grappling with a lot. Like, it's hard, you know, you can let go for a while, but then something bad happens. You're like, you want to grab for whatever comfort or security you have back there. Um, I don't know what what do you, what are your guys' thoughts on on what 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 is the qualifier that makes some people able to go through big transitions or transformations? Yeah, I'm I'm curious um, as to what because I mean this is something I can definitely relate to as well, and I wonder how much of it is related to um, you know mental mental illness, we'll say, um, and you know, is, uh, how, to what degree is mental illness just another one of these things that, that these unknowns that are thrown at you and you can, you know, t grab it by the horns or, or try to grasp for something. And to what, and to what degree is it that for some of us, the mental illness itself, itself just kind of prevents us from uh, you know, having that that it's a courageousness, beautiful, to necessary question. I, um, I mean, as a, as a practicing clinical psychologist, which also means I've had more than my my few brushes with mental illness. Um, the first thing I like to do is try to, whenever possible, throw away temporarily the assumptions behind certain words like illness because even if we do come back to it and decide that yeah we're still going to call this an illness words like that often really kind of uh, um, uh, load the scale you know that that when once you call it an illness you assume you're helpless with it that it's something that you simply must suffer with find a way to treat wait for the experts to find a way of treating you and so much of what human development requires and the kinds of things we're talking about today i don't mean in the abstract um, requires 
finding that part of yourself that is able and willing to undergo some kind of transformation. Um, yes, the, the, the mind is, among other things, an expression of a body that has limitations and that has everything from some glitches in the code through some injury to the tissue, um, patterns that are too hard, literally too hard to break, while at the same time there is something extraordinarily flexible and malleable about the human mind. I mean, that's the thing that makes it a mind. It is this this capacity to interact with a world and a world of other people and then the world inside, things that you only get a glimpse of uh, inside yourself and somehow not fall apart. Uh, it's kind of amazing when you think of what it is that a mind has, has to do. And I belong to Martin, you know, a, a way of looking at the human mind and spirit uh, as being, well, most of it is below the surface, like the, the analogy I like, which is a little cheesy, but I think it still is the best one I've got, that um, consciousness and what we think of as the ego is the waves on the ocean. It's the movement of the water. People don't realize that all of the life is below the surface. And to mistake your identity, your consciousness, your willpower with the part that's moving and interacting is to make a huge mistake that, that rules out all kinds of possibilities for understanding who you are and what you're capable of, what's inside you. So that, that being said, I'll say mental illness, if we think of illness for the time being as being challenged, that set of things that causes you more pain and more limitation than you know how to deal with at the moment, then yeah, what I think the, the main point behind the Klitschko story, but also as Martin was talking about that need to transform after that pivot point, the, the fact that we, that we can, we're constantly evolving in some way, even the mentally ill, sometimes even the very mentally ill, there is still change, there is still some kind of growth. Uh, that the limitation in our ability to change, which is sometimes just our capacity. There are some people who can lift more than others, run faster than others. Some people can uh, shapeshift better than others, you know, and in a, in a productive, positive way also. Uh, so if we're going to get better from our supposed illnesses, if we're just going to get better or develop into being more of ourselves, um, you know, as Carl Jung liked to call it individuation, which is essentially that point where that he thought tended to happen in middle to late middle age, where we kind of become who we are, the parts come together, the chord progression starts to harmonize and resolve. Um, and then we get to look inward and see what we're about a little better. Uh, then, well, that's a testament to the fact that we are still capable of some degree of growth. Now, what are the things that hold us back from that growth? Well, you mentioned Beyond, where, uh, you know, Martin and I have talked about Wilfred Beyond a good deal in the last episode, and uh, you mentioned him again today. You mentioned negative capability. Um, neg negative capability was uh, a phrase coined by the poet John Keats in a letter to his brother. 
in which he was talking about how important it was uh, to avoid the what he called the irritable reaching after fact and reason. It was essentially being able to just chill and let things take shape. See what you have to do. See what emerges in that space. And that the you know the, the part of that ego that likes to think, man, I'm smart or I'm in charge of my life. Yeah, good luck with that one. Um, just loves to figure things out, but prematurely, before the data is in, before the intuition has even gotten a chance to, to say it's peace. And so everything from learning something from an experience to growing from experience relies on this negative capability, negative, hanging back, not acting, not drawing conclusions, not making demands of yourself or the world. And then Wilfred Bion, following Freud, who was the first to mention this negative capability, I think, outside of the Keats poem, or the Keats letter, I should say. Um, well, Bion, for some of us, did the most with this idea. Bion had this notion uh, designated by the letter O, capital letter O, which was the big reality. Some say the big O, you know, well, yeah, it includes giant spiritual orgasms, I'm sure. But Bion was talking about that infinity of possibilities of the bigger world, of the parts of yourself that you don't know about, the future that has not become the present yet, that you, all of us move through. We're constantly coming up with emotions, experiences, intuitions, uh, little intimations of things that can freak us out and that that experience that emotion of of moving through oh and 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 confronting the need to change that, that here's a situation you know all right vladimir klitschko in the ring or forget that me i am training for a charity benefit boxing match I have a lot of titanium in my back and I have a numb foot and I am an experienced boxer and my body doesn't work very well. I have to spar and it's not bad, but it's not what it needs to be if I'm going to be in a boxing ring with a 25-year-old competitive athlete. I have to get in there and spar. The stuff I know how to do doesn't work as well as it used to because I don't. I, when I put my left foot down, it's like I'm stepping in wet sand. So everything falls apart, and I don't have my timing back, so my first day back in the ring, I started getting hit. And then I go back to being 18, being hit by my, remembering being hit by my sister, and how my goal was nobody's going to hit me like that again, although now my friend Davey at the gym is hitting me like this repeatedly. And my friend Sarah, who's you know about to turn pro, yes, boxing is now a female sport, has been for a few years, um, she's hitting me. And I had to make a decision. Can I handle this? Because that was the big no-no. That was failure, humiliation in my eyes for many years. And yeah, I didn't have as much on the line as Vladimir Klitschko, but it's me. It's my life. It's a thing that matters to me. Um, I'd like to grow up through it, and I'd like to do well. And I made the decision. I guess at this age, at this time, I'm going to have to let people punch me if they're going to hit me. I'm going to try to stop them, but if I fail to stop them, which happens no matter how good you are, um, well, then I'll learn how to respond. And maybe I'll overcome this 
not fear exactly, but all these, these mental consequences. My mental illness was expressed in it's like you said though dan it's like an ego identity in a way right like i am a person that do, does not get hit right that's like an ego construction that can be challenged like what you are doing now like hmm who will i become if i become a boxer who takes punches that's a new that's a new boxing identity in a way like it's a new ego it's a new style of boxing you're going to have to reinvent your style of boxing which includes being hit more than you used to but you might come out even better for it, right? You'll get new angles, so you'll figure out new strategies. Um, That's the idea. And we had like 10, 12 of our regulars, including some hard, hardened, knowledgeable professional fighters and trainers who were watching the sparring. And I was thinking everything from everybody's going to know I can't fight to I'm going to get knocked down. I'm going to be humiliated. I'm not going to be able to handle what's going to happen to me. And in truth, and this is one of these great moments where you find out you're a lot more durable than you're afraid you are. Yeah, I got punched. It was no big deal. I managed to do pretty well. Had a nice little talk with each of them afterwards where a lot of the taps on the shoulder and, hey, that was great. You know, here's what you did. Oh, yeah, that was great when you did this. Guy comes up to me afterwards and said, that was some nice work. I figured, really? You mean I didn't look terrified and wanted to, you know, crumble into a ball and weep? You didn't see that part? Well, apparently no, because it happened inside. Nobody saw it except me. But let me, yeah. So. And that was the challenge. Let me throw in a few more jabs here to Joe's question as well. Um, just like unsorted thoughts in terms of, of this um, it's funny you mentioned Jung, uh, Dan, because Jung, I think, he himself feared that he was going towards a psychotic uh, breakdown, right? When when he started to have all these kind of depth psychological kind of visions and stuff that he then turned in. Yeah, exactly. Red the Red here. Book by Jung, which is kind of like his own book, right? Like his own journal. Um, one can see that he, he, he thinks or, you know, he fears that he's becoming psychotic, right? So... There is an element of that illness uh, where a person like Jung, he just kept going through it, right? So there's something, I think, to the question of Joe's question of when does an illness stop a person and when could something that could be thought of as an illness catapult what would become post-growth, like post-traumatic growth or post-illness growth. And a few things there. One is really work, right? What is it that enables certain people to work? And I, I, I use the word work here in a broad sense. For me, work relates to things like love, relationships, creativity, truth, like all those things. And, and that holding environment that Dan spoke about, the negative capability, it could also be configured as a kind of psychic capability of holding all these unsorted thoughts together in some kind of loving atmosphere, right? Like, the, the, the kind of prototype would be a mother caring for her young child. But each of us, you know, inside of ourselves can have more or less of this alpha quality where, where unsorted thoughts can digest and kind of come together. For example, sleeping is a good, good thing to do. If one is stressed out and, and, you know, having traumas and stressors in life, if you're able to sleep well, uh, is really a, a, a signum if if your 
certain parts of yourself is still working. Because if you do sleep well, all this stuff will be taken care of in dream work, right? So dreaming is also working. So I think it's a good question. Like, what is it that enable somebody to work? And a lot of factors come in, right? You have socioeconomic factors. I'm sure Vladimir Klitschko wasn't poor. I mean, I guess he had a team of people that were willing to respond to his thoughts. He probably had coaches who would, you know, bounce ideas of potential new boxing style. Maybe he has a family, wife, kids. I don't know. But there's a lot of kind of political realities involved, of course. Uh, if an individual is able to sustain the amount of work that he or she needs to do, at some point that also points, of course, to core fundamental capacities, income, you know, housing. Uh, but most of all, in my world at least, like relational, let's say relational privileges, if we should throw that term around, you know, having good friends, having family still alive, having people who listen to you. Going to therapy can or cannot be uh, such an enlivening act, right? The, the fact of somebody listening to you, responding to your truth, and, and enabling you to articulate things you didn't even know you wanted to say. Um, and remember, psychoanalysis is used to be uh, explained as, a, as the cure of love, right? It's a, it's a cool, uh, you know, that Descartian, I think, therefore I am. There's that funny meme on Instagram where the Freudians say, I love, therefore I am. So being loved, I guess, would be a core kind of fundament why some... And yeah, and to, to love. And to, to love receive and to love, right? To, re to, to be able to receive love, like to, to, to be able to allow yourself to actually feel loved by people who are giving you love. Um, and if those things... And the part within yourself. Yeah. That, because you're talking about also the relation to what's inside you. It, Can for you sure. forgive yourself? Can you nurture mm -hmm. yourself when you're disappointed? Yeah. Because it's, in a way, it's easier to hold on to defeat, right? Because there, you don't need to work. You, you were always able to look like I was the one that didn't become nothing. I was the one that fucked up all the time. Um, I had my chances. I blew it. You know, I, I was not big enough. I was not strong enough, whatever it could be. Right. So that kind of narrative challenge everything except yourself because you don't have to work. Like Dan's example is great. Like he's now out there taking punches. You know, there is a there is a level of maturity in 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 that, I think, being able to say, OK, it's my turn to take punches. You know, I've reached this point. I need to do this. Let's see how it feels. And you're vulnerable then, right? You're in a new spot, right? You're becoming looked at in a different way. So these are some thoughts around that and, and why it works in some cases and others. I guess that's what we're kind of trying to figure out here. At the essence, maybe it's something like last episode, that inner light or, you know, a core of some kind of self-esteem or, or, yeah, some something around love, yeah. Something Let me jump in for a sec because there's a beautiful. I'm sorry about the noise in the background. We got a local truck going by. Oh, okay. and my dog's barking, um, but uh, real world. The th there's a couple of paradoxes here though when it comes to boxing that also relates to the challenge of making something uh, from adversity uh, in in life. Um, all of those socioeconomic and relational advantages in the boxing game don't always work to your benefit it's a stereotype but 
it's true far more often than it is untrue, which is that the toughest fighters are the ones who have had to be tough because the world has not given them love or privilege that um, if you have options other than walking through the punches, if you have a comfort zone that doesn't involve having to fight for survival, symbolic or real, then a part of you is going to come to the point where it says, eh, no, you're not hitting me anymore, I'm going home. Um, the number of times uh, you, know, you can have even world-class, world-champion-level fighters where you can see there was even one moment when one of the great Mexican warriors and Mexican boxers were old-school fighting for pride, you do not quit. Um, it is very much of a national um, characteristic among their fighters. Eric Morales, one of the great warriors fighting Manny Pacquiao. Uh, he's coming back, Morales. He's a little on the older side. Pacquiao is tearing him. Actually, Morales beat Pacquiao the first time they fought. And Pacquiao just buzzsaws him. And Morales is crumpled on, you know, on his butt, leaning against the ropes. Uh, and you see him look over to his corner. The camera's right on him. And he just looks at his corner and he goes, and then the ref waves off the fight. At that moment, Morales, one of the great warriors, said, there's really no point to my doing this anymore. I have a life I can go back to now. And so not, I'm not saying here that, in, uh, that boxing is an exception to the rule. I'm saying that part of what is so scary about everything from mental illness to the challenges of trying to move forward in life and develop when you're struggling with something like a mental illness uh, has to do with the degree to which you can face the, the darker, more dangerous, more painful facts of life. And we all have our limits. We all have those points where we're paralyzed or feel paralyzed. And in a way, by Freud pointing out that the goal of psychoanalysis was to foster our ability to love and to work, was that through love and work, we act in ways that affirm who we are as human beings. We create, we do, we sustain ourselves, and then we love others and we create and we do and we nurture for those people. And when we can do that, we both get better and we are better, which in some respects ties back into the one of the purposes of this show, like we talked about last week, which is that inner light, that ability to pass it forward, that when we can get out of our own suffering and our own internal traps, the traumas and sort of repeti repetitious hell of our inner world, then we can start improving and we start to feel the benefits of doing, being able to do for oneself. Uh, and, and this is one of the areas where we can talk about this another time perhaps, but I'll throw it out there. This psychopharmacological world and the just do it world uh, well, 
let's see what happens when most people go to a psychiatrist, all right? And this is not a screed against psychiatry, but it is against certain kinds of psychiatrists. Those who spend 10 minutes with you, pick a pill, tell you to take it, maybe not even make eye contact, and don't recommend a therapist. Well, great. First of all, we still don't know entirely why Prozac and any of the many other uh, antidepressants work. We kind of know. Um, they have all kinds of side effects. They're not all that terrible, some of them. But the odds that you're going to get much better from that pill are limited. But there's another problem, a bigger one, which is that the attitude the doctor and the culture convey is take the pill, come back in two weeks or a month and tell me how you feel. Yeah, but it takes six weeks for it to really start to show its colors. So come back in two months and tell me how you feel. And so what am I doing? Swallowing something that a major pharmaceutical company made that a doctor who didn't listen to me for more than a few minutes told me to take and wait for the improvement to set in. And at the very least, going to therapy means you're using your mind. You're thinking about what you think, what you do, what you feel, what you can relate to differently. But we have two opposite attitudes that prevail. One of them is take your medicine and shut up. Come back later and tell me your symptoms. The other one is don't be a pussy. Don't be a baby. You know, just do it. Make your choice. Stop making excuses. Yeah, good. Say that to a guy with a broken leg or no leg. You know, say that to somebody who, well, let's see, there are all these little things that human beings can suffer from. Dissociation. When you're struggling enough, that nobody's home phenomenon, that I feel like I'm walking through a cartoon or I, don't, I can't feel my hands or my legs, I don't know what I'm doing now thing. Many people feel this. We do it when we're overloaded. We call it being in shock. Or the toughest soldier, Marine, who comes home from combat and can't sleep and can't wake up and can't do and can't eat and the nightmares don't stop and he can't go to work. It's like a ghost life, man. Joe, Why? what do you pick? How? Joe, what do you pick down from all of these uh, rambling thoughts here to your <laughs> to your question? Um, well, uh, <clears throat> well, yeah, I think um, so. So, Dan, what you just said, and then uh, Martin, something you said earlier, I think. Um, covered a lot of what I wanted to get in there, which was sort of like, like I'm anticipating the political answer to this, which is, um, you know, if, uh, you know, sometimes a, like a motivational message um, will be picked apart as like, well, what about disabled people? What about people with mental illness? Like people have different abilities and different um you know, different issues that uh, uh, are not all a matter of like sheer will. And that's, you know, so like I wanted to get that in there. And I think uh, you both acknowledged that well, um, because, yeah, that, the fact is like th this sort of um, mot motivational and and uh, like philosophical um, way of looking at your problems and overcoming your problems are really, I think they are really positive on a personal level. 
And I think the mistake is made when people turn that into a political philosophy, because that's that's like conservatism. Are you talking about any particular <laughs> political philosophy, Joe? Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, it's it's uh, it's a point that a friend made years ago, actually, and, and it stuck with me that like, yeah, if you know, if Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell were like motivational speakers, they might be very good at what they do. You know, it's like, hey, you know, don't wait for someone to help you. Like, go, go just yeah. do it because you can't like you, you know yeah. what you can do with your money and with your yeah. life and whatever. Um, like, good. Great. Yeah. If you're just telling people that in a conference room or, you know, a, a lecture hall. Awesome. Um, but yeah, when it when it comes to like a political um, philosophy, it's uh, it's a whole different. Uh, it's a whole different story. I, you know, I don't, I don't like, I think our goal should be that um, people don't have, you know, there aren't so many people with, with the option of fight through this or that's it for me. <laughs> um, yeah. And I know th- it's, it's a, it's a very good point and, and it's, it's very on point as well. Like, you know, privatizing, institutional responsibilities is definitely kind of a part of a of a right-wing ideology of of laissez-faire you know of of anything goes that's not at all what what my intention of talking about today is really i i I am interested in this more from let's say a creative um, inspirational spiritual transformational alchemical like we used in the last episode where, you know, regardless of what kind of position you find, you know, what kind of corner you're in, basically, uh, what, what, are the, what are the things that can happen? You know, my, my end game doesn't have to be to rise like Vladimir Klitschko and reclaim victory. You know, that I think is, is uh, perhaps not even the, the wanted recipe, but it's really interesting. For example, somebody like Jung, who thinks he's going to psychosis, finds an own idiosyncratic way and becomes a very, very important figure to a lot of people. And it has reverberations across, across the world, across generations. So I think there is something there in that interests me in, you know, like almost like music, right? Like what keys can you strike? You know what I mean? Like, fuck, you're in a band. You don't want to play in that band, but, but you can't find your way out of the band. What do you do? Maybe you start playing a song that's different than the band and, and somebody else comes through the door and it's like, hey, who's playing that Coltrane tune? Hey, kid, come with me, right? Like there is a, there is a way to keep life going, I guess. There is a way to feel pulse, to feel a rhythm under your, under your skin. Um, and I think that's, that's important for all of us. Uh, so it's, um, I don't know, it's not an apolitical maybe. Uh, for me, it's maybe more of a creative exercise yeah yeah yeah. i think it's definitely it's two sides of you know it's it's two sides of life and and uh i just wanted to sort of make clear for listeners that 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 is how we're talking about this um and so it's not taken (laughs) the wrong way and let me just say that that i think the the political is necessary and even the this transformational intrapsychic um trans-subjective perspective that we like translates into politics too and it can translate into a different kind of 
yes. politics. Uh, you know, if we have, uh, you know, what are my two fascinations? Boxing and jazz. And it's not just that I like them. Um, they have so much in common in certain respects. Well, that and psychology and psychoanalytic theory and practice that um, the political reflects the prevailing attitudes and leanings of the bigger sections of, of the public at any given time. And what have we seen in recent years? Well, in my opinion, and I think we, we, we overlap to a great degree, uh, is that there has been a valorization of, of hatred, selfishness, suspicion, this sort of, you know, uh, smug, angry people who happen to agree, yeah, you know what, we're going to hate them. And help people who need help, screw them, they're parasites. Why should I help them? The very idea that we collapse back into groups who define themselves based on what groups they hate and fear, and what negative attitudes, namely what we won't do for people, what we won't tolerate in people, what we won't respect in people, those turn into actual politics, policies. They turn into institutions, literal ones, and the institutions of large groups of people and the way they tend to respond. So, and that eventually turns into legislation. You know, it's not just ideology now that separates the, the, the right and the left. Um, it's the concrete consequences of a bunch of people getting together and deciding what's going to be law, what's going to be policy next. The idea that it should somehow be soft, weak, and full of foolish illusions that people ought to help one another. To me, this is an utter failure, an utter failure of the better qualities of being human. Not only that, but of the basic facts of being human, which is that we are connected on a number of much deeper levels, and that to pretend that we are all in competition and that we are separated by these superficial differences um, is, you know, that, that is to me lemmings going over a cliff. That, that is playing to our greatest weaknesses. So the politics is an outcome of attitudes like this that are not questioned. And but isn't this, yeah. uh, isn't this where, where uh, I'll take hypothesis two here. If stepping into the unknown was the first idea of, of what makes certain people able to go through these kind of things, Hypothesis two here would be that these kind of radical transformations that we, we use Klitschko as the example, but we could also see other elements of society that are pushing through, you know, the, the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, certain like the transgender issue movement, like there are certain nodes of society that are pushing through to a new level, like a new calibration of their common and uh, historical identity. And I think here is the hypothesis that what, where you one will end up after a kind of transformative um, remake, like the ones we're talking about today, would be ecology, which is in fact also a political position, or could be an ecological view of the world and mankind and planet and nature. Um, because I think that's where we, that's where one comes. If one takes that river bend that I talked about one starts to, to acknowledge that you're being helped there. You have a rock to hold on to there. You have a tree helping you out there. And all of a sudden, that resonant universe 
is also a political view of the world that entails a new responsibility towards things like, you know, carbon emissions and flying and meat and, you know, what have you. Um, so there is a political potential, I think, in this um, that would be a vibrant kind of resonant, you know, responsibility. I like that word because it's thrown around so much in politics. Like, uh, you're not responsible. But if you look at it, it means the ability to respond to the context of where you're in. And, you know, like the flower, if the sun is there, it bends that way and then it comes up that way. Like These there are is facts a of nature. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is not um, some some foolish uh, you know, slogan. This yeah. is what happens when you stop interfering. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting point, Martin. Um, and I think it's uh it, you know, what it made me think of, um, are you guys familiar with Jordan Peterson? Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually Jordan be, Peterson is important because he's a self-proclaimed Jungian, but I think without realizing it, he violates almost all the basic precepts of Jung and yeah. keeps the ones that that validate what he'd like to believe about himself. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I was I, I was interested to know what you thought of him actually. That's um, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. But yeah, and it, you know, one of the big points that he makes, and you know, he's also someone who claims to be very a apolitical, but you know, he sure talks to Ben Shapiro a lot for someone who's not a conservative. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he makes this point a lot about you know improving yourself before you try to improve society. But like uh, Martin, when you put these civil rights movements in this context that we're talking about. Um, it's like, well, yeah, how, how is that not trying to like help your community and help the world be better? Yeah. How is that not self-improvement? <laughs> yeah. It's a very good question. Yeah. That reflects the definition of the self, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. As separate. <laughs> right, and I, yeah. yeah, it's, it's confusing times. <laughs> I think in terms of politics, I think that the, I don't know if we talked about this last week or not, but the big divide that I see is really corporate versus human in a way, you know, rather than left, right, or whatever other kind of categorizations we use, I think it's like big money versus human. That, that I think is the real kind of political divide that we're coming, coming towards. So, so the, the kind of self agency of these community hubs, um, whatever we call them, you know, not like, for example, the, the Me Too movement or the Black Lives Matter, like the different kind of examples we've seen, um, I think that go needs to go for all of us. You know, we're all going to come together eventually as one pawn of people that needs to reclaim something against the more anonymous kind of sci-fi alien. You know, the big monster. It's like Jeff Bezos in a shuttle hub somewhere, pressing buttons. You know, or Elon Musk like helping him on or something like. Uh, that 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 I think is a political struggle ahead, um, and uh, maybe ecology is is relevant in that in that setting. That that people, human beings, find an ecological touchstone with each other. There's the like boxing. What I like with boxing, I'm a beginner, right? I've only done it for like six months. I'm still at that phase where I like the touch sparring. What do you call it, Dan? Like, there's a like, term like, we haven't. Uh, light contact. Uh, it's like puffing, you know. Yeah. You basically just like boop, boop, boop. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the kind of uh, boxing I'm into. Yeah. 
but you're facing it and you know there, there there's something we all have our our examples our metaphors you know boxing and jazz or a biggie i want to throw in some something else related uh, I, I realized there was a very small interaction when i was 14 years old that actually has uh, i haven't thought of it in a long time but it it, it feeds right into what we're doing today. I took a couple of guitar lessons with a young guy. I mean, he was, I don't know, 18, 19 in the neighborhood. Um, and he was a big jazz player. I remember um, telling him how, how nuts I was over Jimmy Page and this, uh, man, did you see what he did with that violin bow on Dazed and Confused, you know, and the song remains the same. And he wasn't impressed. He was saying, you know, it's all, all just a, a bunch of, you know, flopping around gymnastics on the guitar. And he was, I remember him telling me something about the jazz that he was learning to play. That the neat thing about jazz is that there is no such thing as a wrong note. The value of every note is based on what came before and what you're yeah. going to play next. And there is something here which plays right into this psychoanalytic thing and the creative thing and the ability of a of a mind to keep thinking or alpha function. You know, you talk about beyond and this mm. idea of, of alpha function and dreaming, which is to take turbulence. It's to take mess and noise and, 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 and bodily disturbance and random mental energy and turn it into things that you can think and also a mind that can think of those things. Well... Yes. Freud had his life and his death instincts, Eros and Thanatos. Eros is move forward. Eros is make more connections, make something. Thanatos isn't just about dying. It's about the part of you that says, slow down, stop. Now, Eros and Thanatos in balance means, well, you make wise choices. You don't just babble when you talk, or you don't just move randomly as fast as you can. It's the balance that enables you to make wise, creative choices. And it's the same balance that happens in the body because cells are dying off even as new ones are being created. And you get that for a while, maybe 80 years, 90, apparently 150 is the maximum. Uh, you know, I'll stick around as long as I can to find out. But jazz, will there be a next note? Will the pulse keep going? Will the beat keep playing? Because no matter how free the jazz gets, no matter how noisy, there's always something to respond to. And there's this human inclination to, oh, I don't like that, shut it down. Or, oh, that hurt, I'm gonna stop. Mm. I'm gonna walk away, I'm gonna hide. I don't like what you said, I'm gonna hit you. Or I'm gonna ignore you. Those expressions of that so-called death in instinct, that idea that when something bothers you or offends you or crosses a line nothing comes next you shut it down that is where the death instinct takes over jazz what's the next thing you're going to play how are you going to answer this boxing are you going to throw another jab these are great points man i really yeah and in terms of beyond he said one thing that you made me think of now dan he said that yeah, I've read a paper about truth, like what is truth? How can you get to truth and so on? And there is that Bionian saying of truth is that which brings you closer to other people. Of course, one could qualify that and say if you're in a Ku Klux Klan membership, you know, you get closer to people. But if you're commonsensical about what he says, it's eros, basically, right? Truth is that that you speak that resonates with other people. So you feel closer to them. So there is a certain bodily relaxation 
because you've spoken the truth, you can see in their faces that they understand you, and you then start to understanding yourself through their mirroring. Mm-hmm. And another point I wanted to raise was truth. this. Um, One second, truth. Beyond said yeah. another thing about truth, which yeah. is that there is a truth instinct. Yeah. That there is an instinct for truth, like there is an instinct for nourishment and for oxygen and for water. And maybe it's akin to the plant, the flower that bends toward the sun. These are tropisms. These are the most natural movements, the most basic movements. Yeah, and I think, yeah, the truth instinct, I think, would go well with wanting to get closer to other people, right? Like, it's the natural state of being, uh, of being in relationship, of being in community. But to that point, I think the integration and differentiation is necessary, because I don't want it to come across here as I'm propagating everybody come together, we're all one people, every, you know, everything is the same, like, no, when you box, right, an uppercut is different than a hook, which is different than a jab, which is different than a cross, right? If you play music, a horn sounds different than a trumpet that sound, and so on. So there is that element of differentiating parts, isolating parts so that their unique qualities can be known, nourished, and refined, and then integrating these different parts into a musical system or a boxing uh, boxing person persona or whatever so both of these things are necessary i'm not talking about a samuel surium of like everything is meshed into a smoothie no no we're talking fruit fruit cocktail here we're talking nicely cut lemons you know smooth ananas dices you know strawberry halves you know blueberries on top whatever like they're different things and they portray different qualities sounds uniqueness and they shall be respected as such. But when they come together, that thing that makes them come together, that is the kind of background noise. That's the magic, right? That's the, that's the water or the matter or the, I don't know, maybe the bass player in the band or, you know, that background thing that creates, yeah, that allows the, the different players to go on whims. Um, and there is something about, you know, you Scandinavians that you even find a place for fermented fish. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. Nothing goes to waste over here, man. No. But I'm not a I'm not a fan of that of that dish. If you come here, we're gonna we're gonna eat something else. Uh, Done. Yeah. So Joe, what have we what have we figured out so far? Uh, clock is is ticking by. My yeah. My time is running up. Um, um, yeah. I mean, I think uh, I think we covered a lot of good stuff here. Um, the, uh, uh, you know, this idea of, um, of breaking through and finding sort of, uh, an unexpected way to break through these moments of difficulty, I think is a good takeaway, um, where you're not finding some magical way to not get punched. You're finding a way for getting punched to work for you. <laughs> there you go. Should we play? Should we edit in the doors in this? Break on through. <laughs> yeah. Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. All right, cool. Yeah, it's funny when you said that punching and allowing yourself to be punched. I've tried a little bit of wrestling also, right? Submission wrestling and stuff. They do that in the gym where I go to box. So I've tried a few classes. So when they choke you and all the shit they do, right, you, you tap. And of course, the natural instinct, I tap. As soon as somebody have me in one of these crazy grips, I just tap. And the guy is like, why are you tapping? 
why are you tapping? I'm like, I have no way to get out of this, man. You're fucking choking me like an anaconda. He's like, no, no, you're not hurting. You're not in pain. So why are you tapping? So from his perspective, you know, you tap when you hurt so much, you can't breathe. You don't tap because somebody have you in a position that you think is difficult to get out of, right? So it's a good metaphor. It's like, it's like try to get out. And if, if you, you can, you will, you know? to be creative yeah. still. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I, that um, was his message. Yeah, I had a girlfriend who did uh, judo classes and I went once or twice with her. And uh, I remember the instructor saying a lot to like while people were sparring, um, say like saying chill, like it's okay. Like we're all okay here. There's no, you know, because your body has this like initial reaction to being, uh, grappled and, and held down and, and whatever. Um, and it was like just this, this, uh, frequent reminder that like, like you, you, your body feels like it's being attacked because it is, but like you're safe here. It's okay. (laughs) You gotta just train yourself to like, relax in those moments yeah yeah exactly that's profound i mean maybe this is actually kind of what we've figured out there's still time (laughs) you know there's always time fighting jazz politics psychoanalysis man is this an interesting uh salad (laughs) what what did you say what did you take dan what was your uh what did we figure out today per your um i think i'm uh very uh, engaged with the idea here that in adversity there is that moment when your instinct tells you that you got to get out of here i'm going to die i'm going to die i can't do this but that that moment when you feel that that sense of, of 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 helplessness is almost never the moment of helplessness it's something in you that has learned to say, I can't handle this. I don't know what to do next. And that one thing I took from today was it kind of validated what I've been trying to do lately um, in the ring, uh, yeah, a few other areas of life too, which is, yeah, uh, face that trauma moment, that moment when I think all my resources are expended and I don't know what happens next. But don't draw conclusions, you know? No more irritable reaching after fact and reason, such as, I just got hit, therefore I'm screwed. No, I just got hit, figure out the next thing to do, you know? And that is the birth of creativity. There is no art without friction, you know? There is no building anything without force and, 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 and contact and, um, and risk. And that most of us are far more durable than we think we are and are capable of creating beauty in the, in the heights of pain. If anything, since we're dealing, uh, each of us in our own way, with arts, um, can you imagine a music or a poetry or, or a dance in which everything is just fine? <laughs> yeah. No, I think, and yeah. That's, what a lovely that's smoothie I had today. I'm going to yeah, write myself the, that's my jam. Nice. Yeah. yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> I think for me, the, the the one I remember would be the one when you spoke about jazz, how it always goes on, right? And you link that to Thanatos saying like, the moment somebody plays a tune you don't like, the moment somebody offends you, the moment somebody crosses a line, you shut down, like, right? You go into autopilot, death instinct saying like, fuck off, I want none of this. Or you shut uh, them down. 
Yeah, exactly. And I think that was profound. Like the, the, the will to go on is in that context equivalent of, of Eros, right? The will to keep playing music. And if somebody doesn't like that note, doesn't matter. You know, there is another one coming up in two seconds. Um, there is something affirming in that quality of, of allowing yourself to continue uh, to just like shed layer after layer and keep keep doing your thing, basically. Um, so right. I think that was, a, that right. was an important end message. A bit of existential poetry of sorts. Do it. Albert yeah. Camus, Camus yeah. who wrote some of the more interesting and thoroughly depressing existential plays and novels, um, is perhaps best unknown for uh, saying something. I don't have the precise quote here, but what he had written was, I found that in the depths of a hopeless winter, that there was inside me an invincible summer. So this was the, the master of depressive, you know, the, you know, life is senseless, absurd, pointless, uh, who came up with this notion that there is a part of us that just will not stop trying to live and move forward. And that's the basis of anything we want to accomplish. And maybe, just maybe, that is connected to Earth. Because I know from Camus how colored he was by his early years in the Maghreb, northern African, Moroccan, Algeria region where he grew up, you know. And the light, I have read his own accounts of his formative young years with his mother there running around playing and how the light and the ground and the soil you know, produced some kind of uh, sensation in him. That is the one you speak that comes through in the quote you say there. That underneath it all, there is that memory of light, bright feeling of earth and soil and home. Uh, so maybe that's a little little hint there to the ecology vibe I was throwing out earlier. That there is some kind of primordial relationship to to the earth uh, in the bottom of us all that kind of sustains this will to, to keep going, you know, like a, like a flower, like a tree, like a, whatever it could be. Yeah. Mm. I'll let that be the end. All right. Or the beginning, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. It was, it was nice to talk to you both tonight. And you too. See man. you. See you next, next time. I am Dan Sapin. You are who, who are you? Martin Hallberg. <laughs> Joe Messina. And we are figuring it out as we go along. <laughs>